Well, hello and welcome. It's another Books of the Year podcast. It is. And high time we did another one. It is. We'd like to do more, but Matt is working. Uh, well, there is that. Um, and I, I think it would be remiss of us uh, in this podcast to not mention the other thing that is going on in the couple of weeks before this uh, or after this podcast. Is that podcast my wife's uh, ceramics exhibition uh, in Dives? Well, obviously there's that, but uh, there is also Champions League final. Oh, that? Yes. yes. In which, which, uh, who'd have thought it's <laughs> Liverpool against Spurs? Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't think either of us after the first legs would have thought uh, our teams were getting through. No. Uh, but uh, how hilarious that your team Tottenham, my team Liverpool are going to meet each other in the Champions League final that, in Madrid. That's the actual, that's your real Champions League your final. Your real Champions League final. So are you going to Madrid? Not at the moment. Not at the moment, really. Are you? I don't think I can at the moment. Have you got, a, have you got a Jim Carner <laughs> to attend? <laughs> no, it's because I think I can get a ticket. It's about getting out there. Getting out. I ridiculously left it until after the Spurs semi-final to try and book a plane ticket. At least we're trip. not going to the other final. Oh, in Baku? Oh, yes. my goodness. Imagine me. being Arsenal or Chelsea and going yeah. two and a half thousand miles to watch the Thursday night cup final. Yeah, absolutely. What a, what a nightmare that must be for Chelsea fans. Heart really does go out to Chelsea yeah, it must fans. Be really, oh, really, really difficult. Never mind. Eh? But so the next time we do one of these, the Champions League will have been It will have been done. And yes. I have to say, you know, I have to say I I've always thought we're going to lose every match anyway. So I'm going to say we're going to lose this one oh, as well. Oh, come Apart on. Apart from the fact that you said to me a few weeks ago that you are convinced that Laurenti, our kind of yes. part-time striker, is going to score the winner in the final. There and you said this at the quarterfinals. Well, yes, I, I, I so, should. I mean, I also, I did say when you were um, uh, playing, or when you were drawn against Man City, I said, I fancy Tottenham to beat Man City over two legs. And what happened? I didn't. No, you didn't. Well, you went through. So, and then, so do you fancy you know, supposed to be Liverpool over I, one leg? Um, I, well, every sensible bone in my body is saying that you, I should say now, I think it'll be a draw. But... Uh, it the, can't be a draw. Well, no, I mean, you know, goes to penalties or whatever, in which case, you know, oh, it as well be a draw. Um, but I think, I think Liverpool might do it. I you think? think, I think we might well, obviously do. they might do it. <laughs> and you are, and Liverpool are favourites because you've beaten Spurs twice this season already. That's true. And you, yeah. you know, you were only one point behind the champions, yeah. and we weren't. So you're clearly the better team. Okay. The fact of the matter is, yeah. You know, we beat Borussia Dortmund home and away. We yes. beat Manchester City, beat yes. Ajax, etc. Et and also, I don't think if we go three nil up, or you go three nil up, neither of us are going to be thinking this game's over. Correct. Unless it's 90 minutes on the clock and it's still 3 Well, nil. no, because it looks like, you know, <laughs> Lucas Maurer's on the pitch, so, you know. Anyway. <clears throat> yeah. Why don't we... We should do a live podcast. During the game. During the game, just you and me. <laughs> watch, we should watch the game together. And yeah, do no, absolutely. Well, if I, well, put it this way. I'm, if I don't go to Madrid, I'm going to go to Anfield and watch it there. Because I'm sure they'll put it on on the on the big yeah, screen. Yeah, I think Spurs and have said Spurs are doing do the same. Why don't you they? go to Spurs? I'll go to Anfield. Yes, let's do that instead. <laughs> For maximum pleasure. <laughs> anyway, so here we are with our Books of the Year podcast. And uh, we are uh, going to introduce you to our guests. We've got lots of bits and pieces to get through. Yeah. Shall we do that in a bit? Or shall we... About to get top production advice. We're going to get Chloe. So Chloe's going to come in. So okay. while she's being shown in, should we just carry on? Yes, just do it. Uh, Alison contacted the show after the uh, the last one. Excited for another Michelle Paver book. Yeah. Matt described perfectly how I felt 
reading dark matter and thin air too. Never felt so much dread as I read further. In a good but scary way, can't wait to read the new one. Yeah, John Boyne. Oh, John. Uh, uh, yeah, our own John He's Boyne. Back. Says, I'm back to talk about books I'm enjoying. Strange kitchen implements and missing slippers. Clay nice now. Yeah, so the door opens, go. which means that Chloe... Who In you to come, arrival. Chloe. So Take we, a seat. Have, have a glass. As the door opens, you can uh, you can hear the pulsing sound system, which is part of, of our life. What the young people are listening to these days. So uh, yeah, so John Boyne, who when he came in in the last, we're just carrying on. By the way, we're just carrying on. Yeah, you, know, you, you just turn uh, off uh, your uh, phone. Yes, yeah, so forget that I'm here. <laughs> so John, so when John was in, he, he explained why he turned off Twitter because of yeah. fuss and bother. But I think yeah. he's back as long as you want to talk about books. Nick Johnston was. You don't, you don't know how to turn, turn, turn Shall I turn your phone? Matt will turn yeah, your you, phone. Are you, yeah, it's, uh, it's a new kind of tricky main. Hang on. Oh, it's not. Oh, we could, we could pass it Chloe Hooper is our guest. Oh, no, by that's the way. Your Siri. She's just I mean, arrived. I Siri. There we go. No, I don't know what. Hey, Siri, turn her phone off. Hang on. Oh, uh, I know. If I do this. To power off your iPhone, press and hold the power button. Then press. move the slider that appears on the screen. Okay, that's what I'm doing. Having press and hold the power button. We were just talking about modern life things. here. She's not doing anything. Let's, let's, let's say that's off. Chloe, why don't you just sit on it? All right, there we go. Okay. There we go. Thank you very much. Nick, Nick Johnston on this. Uh, I finished the excellent. You will be safe here on the train tonight. Uh, loved it, uh, Damien Barr. Then spooky coincidence on the way back from the station, listening to books of the year, and John Boyne said it, that was the last book that he really, really enjoyed, and I completely concur. Yeah. Do you mm-hmm. want to carry on? Oh, and uh, Daenerys. Well, I'm not going to read everything. All yet. of them. Why should I read everything? Is, yet? Dena- Dena- is, is that from Game of Thrones? I don't watch I Game of Thrones. Is, yeah. Daenerys. Uh, the studio you used looked like a cross between a sauna and a giant Domino's peg scoreboard, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is a bit. It is a bit like a sauna, yeah. Sally Jane says, I've tried very hard to get Alexa to play a Books of the Year podcast via any means possible. We've settled for a Confessions podcast instead. I don't do those anymore. Well, anyway, it's good know. to hear you all together again. Do you have any ideas as to how to get Alexa to play a Books of the Year podcast? Well, you this is a bit uh, my the understanding show, really, isn't is it? that you say, hey, Alexa. Okay, we can't say that because then it'll start. Hey, no. Alexa, play no, no, Books of the Year. Because... Subscribe to Books of the Year. Play it now. <laughs> yeah, because then. Can you same. go to the till at WH Smith and. Is there, a bu- is there still a button on the till that says Simon Mayo and get 10% off? Well, Chloe can't even turn her phone off. So the chances <laughs> of us working out how you can get Alexa to play a Books of the Year podcast, I thought it was very straightforward. Because if you say, hey, Alexa, play Scala Radio, that it comes on. Okay. So if you say play a book, oh, maybe, ah, Simon Mayo's Books of the Year. Oh, no, that would make sense. Try yes, that. Try that. that. Yeah, so yeah, try yeah, that, yeah. Sally Jane. So you say, hey, Alexa. Hey, Alexa. Play Simon Mayo's Books of the Year podcast. And that should work. Brilliant. Anyway, Chloe's thinking I'm in a madhouse here. No, no, <laughs> I, I feel... This is the Books of the Year podcast, by the way, Chloe. Excellent. How are you? Very well. Where have you been, by the way? Just asking. The, the Natural History Museum. Okay, very good. Hmm. You have a good yeah. time? Yeah, great. Did you Thank buy you. us anything while you were there? I've got your keyring in my bag. Fabulous. Okay, okay. I don't yeah. want a keyring. Yeah. Chloe Hooper is here and is our guest on our Books of the Year podcast, or to give it its proper title, the Simon Mayer's Books oh, of the Year podcast. get you. I don't want you to feel <laughs> left out or anything. But that is the title, yeah. Uh, Chloe's new book is called, is it The Arsonist, A Mind on Fire, or just The Arsonist, really? Ooh, I guess you can you can choose your own title. Well, it's your, you're the author. 
So it's down to you. I think it's just The Arsonist. Okay. Good. The book is The Arsonist, and Matt's going to describe the cover. Okay, so what we've got is, well, it's, it looks, if you turn it on its side, it looks like a tree line. In fact, that's exactly what it is, a tree line with uh, a, clearly a fire raging behind it, and you've got the billowing smoke. Uh, so effectively, this is a, a red and black, very arresting cover with uh, Chloe's name, Chloe Hooper, right at the top, and then the, the Arsonist, A Mind on Fire, What Kind of Person Would Deliberately Start a Firestorm? What kind of mind? So that's so that's all on the front page. I hadn't actually noticed that that was the... You have to turn it to one side on a... I, had, I, think, I hadn't either, so thank you very much. I think it is, yes. Right, you're right. Yes, you have to yeah. turn it on its turn side. Turn it on its side, there you go. To see it properly. And it's a very arresting cover. So Chloe's book is The Arsonist. This takes, uh, back, takes us back to the events of February the 7th, 2009, known in Australia as Black Saturday. So... Just it's obviously it's not part of our consciousness. Uh, consciousness in the way it is in Australia. Just just explain what happened on Black Saturday. Okay, so in Australia it is a day where people remember where they were, and um, there had been a week of temperatures over forty degrees Celsius, and suddenly the uh, uh, it was reported that this was going to be the worst day on record. There were going to be temperatures in the mid forties with gale force northerly winds. And uh, everybody was warned not to go out if they didn't have to. Um, And indeed, hundreds of fires broke out across the state and 173 people died. Initially, it appeared that of the five fires where there had been fatalities, three had been deliberately lit. And on the Thursday after Black Saturday, uh, one man was arrested. It's very hard to actually uh, apprehend arsonists. And um, he is the, the, you know, the man the book centres around. So just to be clear, in the, in, the, in the big scale of things, the total death toll is 173. That's right. But the, so that's the, that's the macro picture. But the micro picture, as we focus in to that's your right. particular yes. fire, this is part of what happened. Yes. But this is a particular... This is a single fire. Well, it's a it's a single fire that um, spread... Okay, so the arson squad arrived on the Sunday morning and they could see that uh, it's incredible how they actually find these seats of fire. And of 34,000 burnt hectares, which had raged through farmland, forest, plantation... Uh, private property, they could isolate two areas about 100 metres apart, which were, they they got down to two square metres and they knew that the fire had been deliberately lit because there were no, there was no other way this could have, uh, uh, you know, taken place. And um, this fire had killed 11 people and they arrested a local man who was 39 and regarded as a, uh, a, a misfit in the community, and um, he claimed that he'd thrown a cigarette uh, out the window, and and um, uh, he had panicked and driven away. Okay, and just to, just to be absolutely specific, so people can picture whereabouts in Australia is this? This is um, this is southeast of Melbourne in Victoria, in 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 coal country, a very kind of poor uh, working class. Um, area, which had, you know, it's the area of the, the greatest sort of brown coal fields in the world and uh, now a lot of unemployment. Okay, and it's particularly a town called Churchill? That's right. Okay, in the Latrobe Valley uh, in Victoria. And just before we go into um, 
for the detail on this. You, your response to that in 2009 was fairly immediate, wasn't it? So yes. it's taken a while for this book to... That's well, It's right. taken a decade, but you did what on February the 8th, February the 9th? Well, I mean, you know, at first it was... It, it, it took a long time for the death toll to actually be established. And so, you know, everybody was just in a state of shock. Uh, and so were the emergency services. The whole the whole state kind of closed down. Um, but when when a few days after Brendan Sokolok, um, the the arsonist in the title, was arrested, I drove to Churchill to look around and and to really sort of it, it seemed incomprehensible to me that somebody could do this. And uh, that was the beginning, I suppose, of this book. Although I didn't start working on it for why, another. Why, and why did you do that? Why did I drive to the town? Mm. Uh, I suppose, you know... Because you, you weren't nearby, particularly. No, I wasn't nearby. Um, I I guess I was, you know, that's that's the sort of dastardly thing that writers do. And um, I wanted to, I guess, try to understand... I wanted to see if there were clues. And actually, you know, there, there were. I, um, I love this book, Chloe. This is... I appreciate we're only in May, but this is the best book I've read this year. Um, and I haven't felt this way about a book since I read, um, it was probably about 15 years ago, I read um, uh, David Simon's book, Homicide, Life on the Street. David Simon is the guy who's of probably course, better known for, for The Wire. And I remember when I read that book, um, I, I wasn't really, I hadn't really got back into books at that stage and I was working in a newsroom and I was, everyone in that newsroom, I would say, you've got to read this book. And everyone came back and said, oh my God, that is amazing. What, what a fabulous piece of work. And I feel exactly the same about this. And I think what, what jumped out of Homicide and what jumps out of this book is the the immersive sense in that you... I, I, I'm going to guess that you did hours or days and days and days of research of talking to the people directly on the ground when this fire was raging, about how they were feeling, about what was going... what what was happening in front of them. And that absolutely comes across on the page. It's uh, just a phenomenal read. Tell us about that 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 research. Those people you will have uh, that you've talked to, the firefighters, the lawyers, everyone. It, it must have been a, a huge amount of body of work. Thank you for for such a generous uh, reading. I actually didn't speak to people on the ground immediately. Uh, it took you know years for this case to go through trial, and um, then I actually. Um, Tried to, I mean, trying to find your way into a story. You're looking for a soft border almost. And I, I didn't expect the police were going to speak to me. But eventually the arson squad, um, I got onto the detective who'd actually arrested um, the arsonist. And he was very interested in cooperating in this, you know, on this project. And then, um, you know, I, I actually drove the, the arson squad insane by asking them so many questions and trying to sort of recreate this. But I had a problem because I had their side of the story and not and not the arsonist side of the story. And then eventually, um, with with his permission and the permission of his family, um, the his lawyers and his family uh, eventually also spoke to me and I felt like I got the other side of the story. But, you know, this is a recreation from, from you know, some time down the track. It is, but uh, when you're talking to those arson investigators, so you, you were talking just now about how, how amazing it is that they are able to find yes. the seat of the fire. And you take us into that and you, yeah. you, you talk us through 
because it, obviously it's something that you think to yourself, how on earth, yes. when you're surrounded by all this um, charred vegetation, everywhere is just black every, or ash, how on earth do you do you spot? And were you coming into that completely blind? Did you had any experience in, in looking at how fires start or anything like that before? Well, no. I mean, I think we're all wired to be fascinated by fire, um, but... No, and, and and there's a great poetry in how they actually do find uh, the 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 seat of a fire, and you know the the, the um, trees around give all of these clues. The the um, burnt leaves are snap dried in the direction that the the fire went. They're looking at char patterns on the wood, uh, soot levels. There are all of these kind of uncanny. Um, signs almost as if, you know, the, the the bush has morphed and is telling its story and telling investigators, you know, in, in kind of coming alive in a in this sort of in its death to tell them where to go. And I mean that's the the great irony, of course. The Australian bush is designed to burn. And uh, now that we have imported eucalypts all over the world, we see these feral fires with increasing frequency. Can you just explain a bit what you mean when you say the Australian bush is designed to burn? What do you mean? Well, I mean, uh, our our trees are almost pyromaniacal, that uh, a gum tree, is its leaves are full of eucalypt gases uh, and other propellants, and actually to regenerate, it, it, needs to, it needs to burn like this, sometimes to release seeds, um, sometimes to... Uh, you know, the actual ash is also makes the the ground rich enough, you know, for uh, seeds to propagate. So um, the sclerophylls, you know, that this this type of um, forest um, has been burning for uh, thousands and thousands of years. It's written. I mean, I I completely agree with Matt. And, it, and it's written like a thriller, uh, and it's a page turner. And to start with, you think. I mean, people won't read it like this. Now you think well, this is going to be a who done it. You know, who who was it? Who was responsible for setting this particular uh, fire? And then you quick. Then it's narrowed down so fast and so quickly that you think, okay, no, this is going to be not. It's not that kind of book. We're going to be faced with this guy, Brendan Sokolov, very 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 quickly. So tell us about him because he is the man who we spend a lot of time trying to understand and he is the man that set this particular yes. fire that you're talking about. Yes. Tell us about him. Okay, Brendan um, was uh, 39 years old. He was, as I mentioned, a kind of misfit in this um, hard scrabble community. Uh, his his interests were collecting scrap metal. He would be seen with his trailer roaming around the surrounding uh, foothills gathering, um, you know, old cars or uh, other uh, trash people had left behind and he'd take it back to his house and he had a, um, a kind of, um, he'd, he'd burn things in his back garden and so he would be burning through um, uh, electricity wires to salvage the copper uh, um, to sell on. And uh, his neighbours would be hearing him do this while he was listening to Thomas the Tank Engine or Bob the Builder episodes. So um, he was diagnosed three years after his arrest as being on the autism spectrum. So he's now in his mid 40 or he's in early 40s when this diagnosis comes through. And what was striking was that on either side of the aisle, the arson squad detectives believed that they had arrested this cunning serial fire setter 
and his lawyers believed, you know, just as vehemently that they were defending an incredibly impaired man who barely understood what was going on around him. And it was very difficult to try to reconcile these two uh, extremely different portraits. I just want to ask you about the that that phrase, which I hadn't heard before I read the book, the idea of being a fire setter. Yes. It, it makes it, I mean, arsonist, we all understand. Yes, of course. But a fire setter <laughs> makes it sound almost okay. That's you know, interesting. That it's, that it's almost... A yes. job. Yes, right. <laughs> well, I mean, actually, you know, it is, a, it is a job in Australia because there are ongoing debates as to how much of the forest actually, you know, should be burnt per year um, because that's the way that uh, Indigenous uh, Australians actually controlled against these kinds of fires. But you're right. I mean, you know, we've got such a, such a minimal understanding of of why people really light fires. In Australia, 50% of grass fires are deemed to be maliciously or suspiciously lit, and yet we only actually uh, catch 1% of arsonists. Um, we, we have this idea of py- pyromaniacs, which and that's actually incredibly rare. But fire, setter, fire setters, which is a term which is actually used by psychologists so as not to imply judgment, is, is increasingly common. And that's uh, a kind of behaviour which is, uh, you know, now in the DSM regarded as a sort of you're, you have a tilt towards the antisocial or the compulsive. I guess arson, arsonists we tend to think of as people who are setting fire to, you know, their uh, warehouse for insurance purposes, but this kind of wildfire arson... Um, Why can't we be judgmental about it? We can be judgmental. Let's be judgmental and just, you know, yeah, that we'll call them arsonists or firebugs or, you know... I, I, I do want to ask about that, about yeah. arsonists, though, because yeah. um, as you read this book, you are left in no doubt as to how the communities, particularly in that area, where if there is a fire, that is that 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 poses a lethal threat yes. to you and your family. Absolutely, and they view that it's almost like the word arsonist. When they say the word arsonist, it would be how perhaps other communities would use the word paedophile. Uh, that's right. That's right. And I mean, this guy was arrested and the police found um, child porn on his computer. So he was actually sort of, you know, uh, the greatest pariah in Australian life. You know, uh, there we there you have it. And in this community before this fire, I mean, there were actually sort of um, signs nailed to trees saying arsonists die because absolutely this this is um, it's a form of uh, ecological terrorism. And but but also as I say because because they know because these residents know how quickly yes just from looking out of your window and yeah. seeing smoke on the horizon how quickly that is coming to your door yes and and the fear. I, I, well, you you describe it in the book of these these people, you know, th- that awful feeling of do I do I send my parents if, if you know your grandparents or whatever, do I get them all in a car now? Yes. Do they have to all go now? Am I going to stay and try and defend my house? Yes, and I mean that was all. That's uh, in Australia there is a kind of ethos of staying to defend your house. That if you live in the bush, then you you know you should actually be uh, prepared to do that. But I think that. We now realise after these fires that these are, are firestorms that you actually can't survive. And uh, I think a lot of people feel differently about that idea. We're speaking to uh, Chloe Hooper. Her book is The Arsonist to Mind on Fire, and we'll do more in a moment. 
Books of the Year podcast. Chloe Hooper is here. A flying visit, I think, just in very briefly. Uh, the book is The Arsonist, A Mind on Fire. Uh, a quite extraordinary book. We've heard the, uh, the close-up detail, Chloe. You've told us about the guy who did it. You've told us about the overall uh, death toll. But did you sense that there was a bigger story? out there which you wanted to i mean you've used the phrase somewhere i can't remember where i saw it but i read you talked about this being an age of fire and yes. i wonder if you if if you're trying to write a bigger story well i i'm very interested in in how um true crime can actually work to tell a bigger um a story on a bigger canvas um where you know um what's the sociology of of the of this story and um I sort of, you know, I really asked this very simple question, why would somebody do this? And um, what I began to realise was that um, deliberately set fires happen with far more frequency in areas where unemployment and gum trees meet up. And um, certainly in this area, which is actually, you know, there isn't a great population, but the uh, police arrived and cracked open their books the next day and there were 33 known arsonists, um, you know, on the spreadsheet. Uh, of course, Brendan Sokolok wasn't wasn't there. So there was a sense that there were a lot of people in the hills, um, you know, lighting fires. Why is that going on? But, but further, you know, this is a place uh, in the shadow of some of the dirtiest uh, coal fired power stations in the OECD. So there's this kind of irony that um, these emissions that uh, everybody can see from kind of every angle in the community are creating the conditions for uh, more intense fires. And, um, you know, we are now seeing fires um in California, in Spain, in Portugal, in South Africa, we're seeing fires where we didn't traditionally see them. They're burning longer, hotter. This is, you know, some people say the piracy in an age of fire. So so what, what's fascinating about this, so on the one hand, as I think people have got a feeling, this is very much an Australian story. Mm. It is at its roots, literally, it's, you know, it is an Australian story story and and I was in Australia in February and driving up from Albany in western Australia up to uh, up to Perth yes you drive through area where clearly they are terrified of fire and and there's signs by the road yes. saying risk of fire today you know and you, there's a little dial which shows That's you right. where it is and yeah. what the level of fear is which is something that we don't have mm. in this country but like you said it feels as though it's getting I mean we do have fires that are out of control but we don't have it like you have but so on the one hand it's an Australian story but on the other hand it's about industrial decline and poverty and climate change yes in which case it becomes our story um I want to ask you about uh whether there was a point as you were writing this book where you realized uh, what kind of story you were you were delving into how how big a story you had because there is um there is an image from the book that has stayed with me since i read it and it's um it's as a i think it's a father and his son are, are defending the the house from the the fire which is now encircling their property and as you'd expect heat's intense the smoke is everywhere um you can't see much further than the hand in front of your face but i think it's the father then describes seeing brendan walking towards the house mm. and he's carrying his dog and to all intents and purposes looks like 
he is the way he describes it almost as if he's he's just out taking the breeze and yet there is this fire everywhere and i when i read that and i thought goodness to the the image that paints of of a guy just walking so nonchalantly through a blazing fire right. with smoke everywhere. Yes. That image stayed with me for, for for ages afterwards. I wonder whether it w- was was that something that affected you in the same way, or was there was there something else in the book that you thought when you when you were being told this by the people that you were interviewing? Goodness me, this is going to be big. Well, I mean, I guess it. You know, I knew that it was big just because it's um, such a huge story in Australia. Um, but there are so many moments like that. And, I mean, as you say, people saw Brendan, the firefighters, you know, water was being dumped from helicopters. Uh, there were walls of fire, you know, sur- almost surrounding fire trucks. And there is this guy, um, you know, nonchalantly taking his dog for a walk. And, you know, then he appears in this property in this in the midst of uh, a firestorm, you know, and, and at this point he's cradling the dog like a baby. It's, it's you know, stomach to the air. Um, and he, you know, he actually emerges out of the smoke, Um so it's not uncommon for um, arsonists to kind of reinsert themselves as as heroes, and he helped to these people put their, you know, save their um, save their property. But I guess you know this is the interesting thing about he 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 was both things. He was a cunning. Uh, serial fire setter, but also uh, a, a very sort of impaired childlike man. And uh, it gives you a sense, I think, of what it can be to be neuroatypical and almost be living in a completely parallel universe. And that was a sort of revelation to me, trying sort of understanding more about um, about autism as well. After talking to him, did do you think he understood the enormity of what he did? No, I don't think he understood the enormity of what he did. Um, and that's that's not through con- con- a conversation with him, but I think that's that's from the consensus from his lawyers. Um, that, so why does he think he's in jail? Well, I mean, he still claims to be innocent. Um, and so he knows that he's, um, you know, he's in jail because uh, a jury believed that he did set these fires. But even at the end of the trial, his lawyers uh, went up to the cells to speak to him and they realised he hadn't understood that he'd just been found guilty um, and had to explain to him that he wasn't going to be going home. So I think anyone who reads your your book, Chloe, will think... um Okay, well, this is the guy who set this particular fire. He was responsible for for these deaths, and so it's right that he should spend some time locked up in some facility somewhere. But you are also clearly saying that he's. It's too easy to peg everything on him, and there are other. You know, it, there are bigger crimes here. There's a bit. You know, corporations are getting off. Yes, and they yes. are. They claim they really should have some responsibility. Would that be right? Well, I I do believe that. I mean, you know, it's a it's a tricky um, kind of balancing act because, on the one hand, this is a crime that we are seeing with uh, increasing frequency in Australia. Um, sort of arson, the arson squads, chemists are being called out uh, all the time for um, fires that are deliberately lit. Uh, and yet on Black Saturday, there was enormous hysteria uh, around 
um, Brendan's arrest um, and fury and rage as as there should be. But actually what, what sometimes can be forgotten is that of the 173 people who died, 161 people died in fires caused by um, the power grid, by by aging electricity infrastructure coming down and starting infernos, by um, trees which a, a trained arborist, you know, might have picked, which you know f- fell on power lines, and these are the the checks and balances that um, that power companies, you know, save money by not doing properly, and um, you know. Uh, a vast number of people lost their lives and others' lives will never be the same. Given that this was such a massive event in Australia, and I appreciate that in this country it did make the news, but it's nowhere near the same, Mm. and clearly is such an emotive subject in Australia, I'm just interested in what the reaction has been in Australia to your book, because I I would wonder if, you know, a similar book was written about, say, 9-11 in America or any number of tragedies in this country, the reaction there, what has been the reaction in Australia? The the reaction has been positive, but, I mean, it's, you know, it's... Uh... I, I I found myself. I mean, I, I, the last nonfiction book I wrote was about an Aboriginal death in police custody, um, and and that book is very confronting for people, and 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 this one is too. I mean, uh, it's a you know this document is very traumatic for a lot of people, and and reading it can be um, you know some people find it um, very emotional. Um, I also. You know, I'm in a, a difficult situation because it, a lot of, you know, there's one part of the book is written from the arson squad's point of view and the next part of the book is written from legal aid's point of view. And so they have great sympathy for the man who set these fires that killed people and that's that's a complicated thing for people to, to hold in their head and, and, you know, there is such nuance, uh, you know, in real life which sometimes we would prefer... All of us would prefer to believe in monsters. It's it's just, uh, you know, uh, it has a symmetry to it. This book has taken 10 years from the fires in 2009 to, uh, to now. You also write fiction. I wonder if you're tempted to write fiction next just because... It doesn't need to take ten years. <laughs> I look. I didn't. I didn't write. I didn't take ten years to write this book. I, no, it has I, taken uh, <laughs> ten years to emerge yes, in this. It book. has. It has. Um, no, no. I, I look. The the thing about fiction is you don't need permission from the, the characters to to write about them, and uh, you know that can be a relief for a writer sometimes. So does that mean that is what you're writing? <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't mean that. <laughs> so you're going to stick but, with nonfiction? I've, I've got. I'm, I'm. I'm playing with both. Okay. Um, Chloe, it's been uh, excellent to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much Thank indeed. Thank you. Uh, it is, I mean, it's called Books of the Year. And yeah, yeah, this is definitely one of them. It yeah. is yeah. one of our Books of the Year. Chloe Hooper's book is The Arsonist, A Mind on Fire. Thank you, Chloe. Thank you. So thanks to Chloe for coming in. Don't forget, we, uh, we love to hear from you. And uh, if we you do. want to get in touch, if you'd like to email, it's Books of the year at yahoo.com. Well done. Yes, right? it's only been a year. How do we tweet? Yes, we tweet us at, at Books of the Year. Jack Golding, hey, you two, missing your podcast. Well, that's what this is. Yeah. Too busy with your day jobs, not enough time to read the latest blockbusters. Mm. I have been listening to some of your suggestions. 
uh, Graham Norton, Kate Atkinson. But the best so far has been Ben McIntyre's book, The Spy and yeah, the Traitor. very good. Something I would never, ever have chosen had I not heard your interview with Ben. Fascinating insight into the spy world and the lengths people go to when they believe uh, to do what they believe. Oh, lengths <laughs> Funny, gave difficult up to read. Midway through the sentence. The lengths people go to yeah. do. It's because it's... The best go, go to, to to do, do what, what they, they believe, believe is right. right. So actually exactly how Sandra has written it. <laughs> you know, unbelievable. Uh, anyway, that's enough of this. Yeah, well, right, so we've given up on Sandra. Uh, right, Michelle Ong says, uh, just writing to let you know how much I enjoyed the latest edition with Professor Lewis Dartnell, which gave me lots to think about, and has come in very useful exp- for explaining a different point of view for Brexit to my French colleagues. They found the whole concept very interesting and are looking forward to seeing the book translated into French. As someone who has been completely disenfranchised by the whole process, this is going down a certain avenue, uh, I found it very ironic that the advertiser for this edition was none other than the UK government. Is that true? Who have finally got round to remembering that there are a whole load of Brits living on the European mainland who might need to be kept up to date. Here's hoping that things haven't degenerated to the point where Matt is drinking his own urine. Keep up the good work. <laughs> not quite. No, we're not. I mean, we're in May and I'm still give not it, drinking my own urine, give, everyone. Give it a couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, come on. Um, okay, so oh, I, just wanted, I just wanted to do this one. Um... Following on from Simon's brilliant interview with Rick Wakeman. Oh, well, I don't remember him coming on the podcast. Brackets, yeah, I found Scarlet. Oh, I see, so it was on Scarlet. I decided to download his autobiography. How is that man still alive? Anyway, it got me thinking, Matt, have you ever written a book or are you planning to write a book? Uh, The honest answer there is that there was a book that I was planning to write and then, about six months after I started thinking about it, said book got written by someone else. And, That's where and I got all my ideas from. Yes, exactly. It was you. No, someone else wrote the book, and it was a really good book. And I was a little bit sick about the fact that it was so good. So, what uh, was that so about? who was it? Uh, it was uh, it was a book. It was a book about football. It was a fic- <laughs> it was a nonfiction book about football. Um, uh, but uh, I need to come up with an idea. Yeah. Also, both of you, have you ever considered writing your autobiography? Oh yes. Here it comes. Obviously, you've you must have been asked to do an autobiography. Yes, but absolutely no chance. Really? No chance. Absolutely. Why? Why would it be remotely... I know, think... it would be very interesting. What about you? Uh, me? No. Exactly. I mean... That's what I think. <laughs> I mean about me, not you. Oh, right. Hey, Matt, uh, have a good week. Yeah, you It's too. getting a bit hot for the jodpers, though, eh? Hey? <laughs> <laughs> we managed to get through an entire podcast without jodpers or stallions coming up at any point. But stallions, that's good. Stallions, we like that. Champions League final, everyone. Yes. That's what we didn't ask. We should have we should have asked Chloe, Liverpool or Tottenham. Never mind. Don't forget, you heard it here first. Laurenti scoring the winner. Oh dear. Imagine that. You'll live to regret it. Oh, your there will be fuming going on. See you next time. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process. So I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.